0: Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and we welcome each of you here this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. Please join me for lighting our chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. The words are in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another.
1: Good morning. The call to worship is by Andrew C. Kennedy. We come to love a church, the traditions, the history, and especially the people associated with it. And through these people, young and old, known and unknown, we reach out, both backward into history and forward into the future, to link together the generations in this imperfect but blessed community of memory and hope.
0: Unitarian Universalism is a religion without creed. We don't have a set of beliefs that we all have to agree to and sign on to. So sometimes people ask us, well, then what holds you together? Well, as Unitarian Universalists more broadly, we have a set of seven principles that we affirm and promote. And in this church, we have a set of religious values. And out of those religious values arose our mission. It's our common purpose. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community.
1: The meditation reading is by Joy Harjo. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the star's stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life too. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red, black, yellow, white, brown, earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories, too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive. Poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of the universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion growing. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language that life is, remember.
0: This is the time in our service where we breathe together. We breathe together. We feel the loving presence of those around us. We follow our breath to a deeper place inside place of wisdom that we do not always remember, that place where a spark of the divine resides within all of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of meditative silence together, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of that silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, we enter into that time of sacred
1: silence together.
0: Why is it that I can remember every word of the Robert Frost poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, even though I memorized it for a school assignment way back when I was in the second grade, and yet, in the time it takes to walk from the living room to the kitchen in my house, I often forget why it was I went to the kitchen in the first place. I see nodding in agreement over here. Well, the answer to that is actually more complicated than it might seem, but to oversimplify, the reason has to do in differences in how, where, how, and what types of information get laid out in the brain for short-term versus long-term memory. So all of this month, our Lifespan Faith Development programs have been exploring what it means to be a people of memory, which for the most part involves long-term memory. And this morning, I'd like to also explore this with you here in worship, because I believe that memory, how we construct it and sometimes deconstruct and then reconstruct it, is deeply spiritual in nature. It's a huge topic, though whole sermons could and actually have been written just on dealing with traumatic or painful memories, for instance. This morning, though, we'll be focusing on three areas. How we construct memory as individuals, socially, communally, culturally constructed memory, and finally, some research on the potential that a form of memory may actually be transmitted genetically and or epigenetically across generations. So, at the individual level, what science has discovered is that we don't lay down memories like a computer records factual pieces of data onto a disk. Rather, especially with long-term memory, our brains weave our memories into a narrative, a story that we are constantly creating to make sense of our world, to create meaning in life, and to maintain a sense of an individual identity or self And in reality, we also don't lay down our long term memories entirely as individuals, but often in relationship with others and our environment as we move through life experiences moment by moment. This is the first of the reasons that I believe memory is an essential and profound aspect of our spirituality. It is relational, and it helps us find meaning and create an ongoing story about who we are and how we fit into our world. That we construct our memories in this way explains why the loss of memory associated with conditions like Alzheimer's, for instance, can be so devastating and so heartbreaking. It takes away folks' ability to make sense of their world isolates them, and disintegrates their sense of self and meaning in life. However, several studies have found that being touched by loved ones, listening to familiar music, and being offered ritual-like communal activities can sometimes help such folks at least partially reconstruct their personal narratives and make greater sense of their world." That we construct memory in this way also helps explain why our memories can be factually incorrect sometimes. How we can, in fact, have memories that seem real, but that in reality never actually happened to us, and how different people experiencing the same event can come away with very different memories of that same event. Now, let's go through a few examples. How many of you have ever discussed a childhood memory with siblings, family members, or childhood friends only to find yourself arguing over very different memories of that same event? This happens to me all the time with my sister, and she is constantly getting it wrong. (laughs) So what's actually going on there? joking aside, is that this is likely because neither of us laid down purely factual data. We were each creating our own narrative, and so we each laid down a memory that made sense within our own narratives. In his book, Uncle Tungsten, Oliver Sacks, the neurologist and best-selling author, wrote the following about memories from his childhood living through the bombings of London by Germany in the winter of 1940 and 41. One night, a thousand-pound bomb fell into the garden next to ours, but fortunately, it failed to explode. All of us, the entire street, it seemed, crept away that night, my family to a cousin's flat, many of us in our pajamas walking as softly as we could. Might vibration set the thing off? On another occasion, an incendiary bomb, a thermite bomb, fell behind our house and burned with a terrible white-hot heat. My father had a stirrup pump, and my brothers carried pails of water to him. But the water seemed useless against this infernal fire. Indeed, made it burn even more furiously. There was a vicious hissing and sputtering when the water hit the white-hot metal. And meanwhile, the bomb was melting its own casing and throwing blobs and jets of molten metal in all directions. So... Sachs was shocked when later one of his brothers read what he had written and told him that his memory of the first bomb was was absolutely correct, but that, in fact, when the second bomb had fallen, they had both been away at boarding school. How, How could he have such a detailed memory of an event complete with images in his mind's eye of his family members fighting the fire and burning molten metal if he didn't actually experience it, Sachs asked himself. Well, it turned out that another of his brothers who had actually been there for the second bombing had written them a vivid and detailed letter about it and that Sachs had been enthralled by the story. So much so that the images and details it aroused in his mind became laid down as a memory of having actually been there. And as a young child, it would have neatly extended his already existing narrative created by his actual memory of having been there for that first bombing. Subsequent studies using brain imaging technology have found that scans of memories from actual experiences and scans of memories our brains have created will show exactly the same brain patterns. Now, some of you may remember when Brian Williams, the news anchor, got himself into trouble. He went on David Letterman and falsely claimed that he'd been in a helicopter hit by ground fire in Iraq. He was accused of falsifying this story, lying in an effort at self-aggrandizement. Now, we can never know for sure what went on in Mr. Williams' brain, but many memory researchers believe a very similar thing may have happened to him. He was in a helicopter in Iraq when the incident happened, just not the one that got struck, and he had accurately reported the incident only two years earlier. Over time, though, as he interviewed the people who were actually in the helicopter and learned the vivid details, it's possible his brain conflated his actual experience with the intense images generated by the knowledge he had gathered about the flight that actually was struck. So, by the time Mr. Williams went on David Letterman, it's entirely possible that his brain had constructed a memory that seemed every bit as real to him as having been at that second bombing had seemed to Oliver Sacks. Now, I think there's an aspect of the spiritual here also. A spiritual lesson about checking our recollections to make sure that the story we're telling telling ourselves is true. That our own going narratives have not been distorted and not created a distorted memory, especially in ways that could be harmful. Here's just one example there are now numerous incidences recorded of African-American males spending years or even decades in prison put there based upon the eyewitness testimony of white people only to be exonerated all those years later when DNA testing became available. We all, and white people especially, have been fed a narrative about who is most likely to commit crimes, and that narrative can construct incorrect memories that have the potential to devastate black and brown lives. And that leads us to social, communal, cultural memory, because the things that we choose to remember as communities and societies and the ways in which we choose to remember them can also have profound effects upon our lives and those of other people. So we construct cultural memory as a group or a society through the stories and histories we tell, or choose not to tell, through the rituals, traditions, holidays we observe and prioritize, and those we do not, through the arts, music, theater, religious practices, and the very use of what language, symbols, and words we choose to employ, And, like with the individual memory, it is important that we examine, question, and sometimes deconstruct and then reconstruct what narratives we're following and reinforcing as we pass on our cultural memories. For instance, the ways in which we have minimized the brutality and savageness of the genocide committed against Native Americans our whitewashing of the cruelty and monstrousness of slavery and the subsequent treatment of African Americans in the U.S., our avoiding the images of the lynchings of black and brown Americans, and on and on and on, all of these create an incomplete and false narrative, an untrue story, a cultural memory that is steeped in denial and allows the continued supremacy of white culture and people over all others." We fail to teach how white elites encoded the concept of race into law to slightly privilege indentured white people over enslaved African Americans so the two groups wouldn't join together and rebel against such oppression. In our own state of Texas, it will only be in the next school year that our children will finally be taught that slavery was the primary cause of the Civil War and not states' rights. Within Unitarian Universalism, we fall prey to this also. For instance, we often tell a cultural memory about how our Unitarian transcendentalist forbearer, Theodore Parker, was such a leading and passionate abolitionist. That's true. He was. But we less often convey that he also believed whites to be the superior race, called African Americans docile and lacking in intelligence, and referred to the Mexican people as, quote, a wretched people, wretched in their origin, history, character, who must eventually give way as the Indians did. It's just one of many examples. And folks, this is a spiritual issue. We have a moral obligation to do our very best to ensure that the cultural memories we are transmitting are not continuing harmful narratives. This is a real and daunting challenge as we are so often caught within these same false narratives ourselves. Okay, now I want to switch gears and touch briefly on some of the science that's being being investigated regarding whether a transmission of another kind of memory may be possible epigenetically or even genetically. I'll talk about the difference between those two in just a bit. Some of the research is still pretty early on, and some of it is the subject of much scientific debate. Still, I think it also has potential spiritual implications involving ancestry and heritage. So, epigenetics is the study of changes in organisms caused by modification of gene expression rather than alterations of the genetic code itself. Some research has found that in animals, emotional memory, such as a propensity towards anxiety, or the opposite, a tendency toward calmness and resilience, can be passed down epigenetically through several generations. This happens through the transmission of chemicals, methyl groups that attach to the DNA and regulate gene expression. Some studies claim to have found that this happens in humans also. some researchers are also exploring whether a kind of memory might also be encoded over much longer time period through alterations to the DNA itself. Because my life is ruled by three terribly spoiled Basenji dogs, I was fascinated by the study of how humans and dogs have co-evolved over likely tens of thousands of years. Now, dogs and humans seem to be born with an ability to read and interpret correctly each other's facial expressions and vocal tones. When humans and their dogs interact, both species release oxytocin, the same bonding hormone released when humans interact with their newborn children. I was also fascinated by research with savants, people seemingly born with musical genius, artistic brilliance, or even complicated mathematical skills who display these abilities without any training and at too early an age for their abilities to have been learned. Likewise, scientists are studying people who, after experiencing a head injury, also suddenly develop prodigious musical, artistic, or mathematical ability, and again, without ever having had formal training in these areas. Is this evidence of some kind of genetic memory? We'll have to stay tuned as the scientific exploration continues. I want to close by sharing with you an experience I had recently that I think illustrates a number of these concepts about memory and demonstrates just how powerful memory can be. Now, many of you have heard me talk before about how important my maternal grandparents were in my life and the love they gave me as they helped my mom raise me. Well, you're going to get to hear me talk about them again here in just a bit. My grandparents, Leo and Anne, often took us on camping trips with them, and I have wonderful memories of being with them in the piney woods of East Texas and elsewhere. They loved to travel and drove all across the U.S., stopping to spend time in forests, including many a pine forest. And like Oliver Sacks had from his brother's letter, I have these secondary memories from the images I created in my mind when they would return from one of their trips and share with us vivid descriptions of their adventures. Last month, I spent a week exploring the White Mountains of Arizona. One morning, I got up very early and drove up into the mountains to a nature park called Wood Canyon Lake. As I drove into the park... I found myself in the middle of a beautiful pine forest. It was rocky, and small patches of snow reflected the morning sunlight, which was streaming through the trees at a slightly sideways angle because it was still so early. And suddenly, I had this experience that was as if Leo and Ann were present there in my rental car with me. I could actually feel their presence. It was such a powerful experience that I had to pull the car over and stop, and I struggle even now to put it adequately into words. A couple of things I can tell you about it, though. My grandparents had built their clothing closet out of cedar, so they always carried a slight smell of cedar with them, and that faint aroma of cedar came back to me under the beautiful canopy of trees. And there had always been a way that I felt when I was with them that I never felt any other time. And that feeling swept over me again, an unexpected blessing and a reminder of being worthy of such great love. This is the power of spiritual memory, my beloveds. I got to spend a few moments with my grandparents once more even if only through that great power of recollection. And perhaps even more importantly, the ethics and the values that they had instilled in me were renewed and reignited. This is one more aspect of the spiritual power of memory. Not only can we remember and when necessary, deconstruct and then reconstruct memory in ways that are more life-giving, so too, like my grandparents, can we construct much of how we will be remembered. May ours be a legacy of love, justice, and stories truthfully told. Amen. Now please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again.